0: Hello, everyone, and a Merry Christmas to you all around the world. This is another episode of Med Conversations with me, Rahul, and this guy. On Christmas morning. Yeah. How lovely. Who are you, this guy? Um, I can't remember. Yeah, so, It's not, not very important. That's not important for the podcast, but all you need to know is that I'm here. and Rahul, the man,
1: and one of his acolytes.
0: <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease. Um, we're going to kick you off with a case. So, Mitch Feinberg is a 19-year-old undergraduate medical student. He's recently taken up smoking after seeing a Facebook status update from his crush, Sharon, saying he li- she likes bad boys and motorbikes. He despises the tastes of cigarettes, so he buys menthols and sashes them in a normal cigarette packet, so no one can tell he's getting a cool, refreshing blast every time he takes a hit.
1: Uh, those classic, that classic menthol flavor. You just can't beat it, can you?
0: Yeah. Quick shout out to our sponsors while we're here. <laughs> uh, Winfield Optima Menthols. Time out. Um, <laughs> Mitch also decides to start lifting weights in order to bulk up for Sharon. He figures he'll have to wait another year before he can save up enough for a motorbike from working at his father's kosher deli. Hmm, scintillating. I wonder it could be going.
1: (laughs) That's pretty hard to work out.
0: Yeah. So let's start with some intro and definitions with inflammatory bowel disease. So Scott, when people talk about inflammatory bowel disease, what two major disorders are they referring to?
1: So people are talking about ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease.
0: That's right. And these two diseases have a pretty poorly understood pathogenesis. It's all being pieced together now, and we'll touch on that later. But in terms of some definitions, ulcerative colitis, can you tell us some of the features of ulcerative colitis?
1: So ulcerative colitis, you're thinking chronic inflammation, and you've got relapsing remaining episodes, and it's limited to to the mucosal layer of the colon. So it almost always involves the rectum and then extends proximally and continuously from there to involve other parts of the colon. So starting at the end and working its way back up the colon.
0: That's right. And then in terms, can you contrast that with Crohn's disease, Scott? So
1: Crohn's disease affects the whole gut, and you've got transmural deep inflammation of the gut with also skip lesions, so normal bowel in between the parts that are affected. And because of that kind of transmural deep inflammation, it's also more associated with fibrosis, strictures, and fistulae, um, and, but it can kind of skip different bits and um, it com- most commonly affects a terminal ileum
0: It's yeah. kind of the key word there yeah terminal ileum is sort of the classic presentation of Crohn's disease but it, as Scott said it can affect anywhere in the whole gut and then there's some extra intestinal manifestation so stuff that happens outside the gut that we'll talk about a little bit later in terms of epidemiology in Australia, um, there's a prevalence of 1 in 300 Australians. So that's you know, what, 0.3% of Australians have inflammatory bowel disease. And the incidence is about 30 per 100,000. And the incidence is increasing. And it's not fully explained why that's happening, but it's going up in Australia. Um, and so what sort of age group typically do you first get uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Scott?
1: So 15 to 30 years. So Mitch is in the prime category.
0: Wow, what a coincidence that the case yeah. so well suits the yeah, it epidemiology. epidemiology. Uh, That's very clever of you to do yeah. that. <laughs> Didn't even mean to do it. Um, males and females, Scott. Is there a difference? No, it's a, they're affected pretty equally,
1: unlike a lot of mm. other um, rheumatological and autoimmune conditions.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay, so moving on to the pathogenesis and risk factors, um, it's a little bit. There's a lot of things contributing to the etiology. Do you know what some of them might be, Scott?
1: So I think it's. Um, thought to be pretty complex, but it, it's related to some underlying genetic susceptibility and risk factors. Um, there's also luminal microbial antigens in the bugs in your gut. And there's an immune response and environmental triggers, which can happen.
0: That's right. Yeah. With the luminal microbial antigens, there's a lot about the microbiome. And this was probably one of the first diseases that triggered off the whole thinking about the bacteria that are in your gut and how they interplay with your immune system to cause disease. But yeah, in terms of the genetic component, um, there is a higher risk in first-degree relatives, and there's actually a few genes that are pretty well described to cause Crohn disease. They they probably make up the minority of all the uh, of inflammatory bowel disease. But one is called NOD two CARD fifteen. For anyone who's interested,
1: I think there's some HLA types which are more susceptible as well. Yeah,
0: that's right, and that's becoming a bigger and bigger thing over time. And in terms of the environmental stuff, as we said, age uh, fifteen to thirty years is sort of when you tend to peak. If you're 60, you're much less likely to get it. Uh, anything about race, Scott? So it's more common
1: in Ashkenazi Jewish, yeah, people.
0: Yeah, yeah, and lower in Asians. Uh, some people think that might be related to lifestyle factors, but they're not fully identified. And just for anyone who doesn't know what Ashkenazi Jewish means, I didn't know until maybe a year ago, it's actually there's sort of two main branches of like Jewish ethnicity, I guess. And there's Ashkenazi Jews, which are typically more European Jewish people. And then there's Sephardi Jews, which are more like... Uh, you know, the Ethiopian Jewish people, some of the people from the Middle East. So they tend to fall into the mm, Sephardic diaspora. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you tell me about smoking and inflammatory bowel disease, Scott?
1: So smoking actually increases the risk of Crohn's disease, but can be protective in UC.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And they actually found that ex-smokers had a higher rate of UC in one of the observational studies. With then they assumed that maybe if you stop smoking, it's worse for UC. So... Bit, yeah. yeah, so we no, so
1: should be keep kind of chomping down those menthols. Yeah, exactly. Enjoying that fresh
0: summery blast. Well, we don't know. He might have Crohn's disease, though. Oh, that's yeah, true. So yeah, we don't know yet. I know. Oh. Um, and then diet, uh, we think that has an impact on the risk as well. We think the Western diet, uh, whatever that means, increases your risk. So high fat, lots of high energy density, low vegetable intake. And then infections. It's actually interestingly, If you've had severe gastroenteritis in the past, uh, there's, you probably have a higher risk for having inflammatory bowel disease in the future. And that kind of comes back to the gut microbiome we were talking about. Mm. So just to recap, um, so Scott, what does IBD consist of?
1: So two diseases, ulcerative colitis, and that's when you have this shallow inflammation that occurs continuously starting from the rectum and working its way back up the colon. And Crohn's disease, which is deep inflammation that occurs in patchy areas with normal bits in between across the whole gut but um, terminal ileum being the most commonly affected. And then remember, there's some um, extra intestinal
0: manifestations as well that we'll talk about. Yeah. And just to recap, the incidence peaks at 15 to 30 years old and affects males and females equally. And we don't really understand exactly how it happens, but we know there's a lot of things involved and they all kind of play together to give you the ultimate disease. And what are the major environmental risk factors, Scott? So the age groups we talked about, race, smoking, diet and infections. Awesome. Let's move on to the second part of the case. So, shortly into his new smoking and weightlifting habit. It's a habit. Uh, A good habit. (laughs) Mitch notices he hasn't put on any gains at his local Doherty's gym. Incidentally, he feels he's opening his bowels more frequently with associated crampy abdominal pain. He also notes that kissing his hand in preparation for the silky caress of Sharon's lips has become painful due to some ulcers on his cheek. Concerned, particularly about the lack of tennis ball biceps, he comes to you, his local GP. It's a common presentation of IBD, just yeah, absolute classic. Textbook. Minimal gains, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about and some kissing. common presentations of <laughs> IBD. <laughs> so, first up, we've got colitis. Um, talk about that, Scott.
1: So, colitis is inflammation of the colon. So, that occurs most commonly in ulcerative colitis, as you might guess by the name, but it can also occur in Crohn's disease with colonic disease as well. So, you're thinking diarrhea, and you can also have blood and mucus as well. Um, you can have tenesmus. What's tenesmus again, Scott? uh is the feeling that you're got something in your bowel yeah in your your rectum correct incomplete emptying after you've already passed Mm. a bowel motion Uh, colicky abdominal pain and even incontinence and usually it's gradually progressive Mm. and then you can also have associated systemic symptoms like fever low blood pressure High heart rate, which is also known as tachycardia. Hypotension, (laughs) tachycardia. Uh,
0: Those are are bad signs. I mean, if you're starting to get to that, it's really affecting your whole system because your colon's inflamed. Um,
1: You can also get malnutrition. um, And that can be due to deficiencies in things like iron b12 obviously things in the terminal ileum vitamin mm. d some other things as well mm. um, and you can get muscle wasting peripheral edema and even cachexia if you get prolonged diarrhea yeah what a terrible way
0: to kind of <laughs> decline yeah like no chronic diarrhea uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's been fairly common i imagine I mean, it's probably how like what 30 percent of people went out back in the day in dysentery days <laughs> <laughs> dark um, times yeah Severity of colitis can be established using diarrhea frequency. So if you have less than four, it's sort of mild, four to six, it's getting into the moderate and more than six, you're in the severe range. And as I said before, if, if you're starting to get tachycardia, hypotension and fever, those systemic things that Scott mentioned, you're also getting to the severe range. So that's colitis and that's seen you know, invariably in ulcerative colitis and sometimes in Crohn's disease. But how else can Crohn's present, Scott, given that it can affect your whole gut from your mouth all the way down to your anus?
1: Yeah, so you can get kind of fatigue, prolonged diarrhea, abdominal pain, weight loss, fevers. Um, you can get this crampy abdominal pain, um, and that can also be associated with small bowel obstructions, secondary to those strictures you're getting from the deep inflammation. Yeah, just like, uh, well, well, Mitch had crampy abdominal pain. We don't know if he had a bowel
0: obstruction. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hopefully not. Yeah. Um, so you can also get diarrhea and that can be kind of fluctuating diarrhea over a long period of time. And one of the reasons you get diarrhea is if you have a lot of inflammation of your terminal ileum, that's where I think 95% or something of your bile reabsorption mm. happens. So then you get um, this kind of bile salt diarrhea. We get all this chronic bile acid in your um, going through into your colon and causing an osmotic effect, I think. Yeah,
0: it causes a lot of secretion of fluid from your colon. I think it's pretty complex how it happens, but essentially yeah, you get this really watery diarrhea called bile salt diarrhea. But there's other causes of diarrhea as well. So they get bacterial overgrowth because of this dysregulated gut microbiome. So certain bacteria overgrow and then cause a, you know, secretory diarrhea. And you can also just get excessive fluid secretion when you have a lot of inflammation throughout the small bowel. And so you end up with a really watery diarrhea. In Crohn's, it's less common to get bleeding because bleeding tends to occur when you have inflammation in the colon down very low and then you get fresh blood coming out. What about fistula, Scott? Or fistulae. 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 So you, <laughs> great word, yeah. fistulae. We're yeah.
1: working Latin kind of conjugation. Mm-hmm. So you can get these fistulae, so basically um, communications between different things in the body that aren't meant to connect together. It's a great way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> People who were never meant to chat, yeah. never meant to get together. Um, it just wasn't meant to happen, you know, the capulets yeah. and the one. The, the skin other one. and the bowel. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sinus tracts, and they're due to that really deep transmural inflammation that we're trying to really hammer, hammer home. And um, they, they can often present kind of indolently rather than acute abdomen. So, and the symptoms will depend on what is fistulized. So you can have, you know, an anal fistula um, coming, kind of communicating
0: with the skin in a different mm. spot, or you can have communications between different parts of the colon and the small bowel. You can get pretty much fistula anywhere where there's just inflammation. And as we said in Crohn's, that can be all along the gut. Mm-hmm. And then perianal disease is sort of, I guess, fistula would be one example of that where you can have a perianal fistula. But you can also get skin tags fissures which are little cracks around there and cause a lot of pain yeah. um and so yeah that can be pretty devastating for people with crohn's as well um, no, for
1: mcqs anal anal pain
0: fissures no pain hemorrhoids Even oh, no, in real yeah. life it can be there different yeah so, i forgot about MCQ that. mcq tip and lastly, there's a you know there's a clinical presentation that is pretty we got to be wary of, which is perforation. So that's sort of when someone has become so inflamed all the time, maybe presented late, and they present with peritonitis or rigid abdomen, rebound tenderness, percussion tenderness, cross tenderness, all those things you learn in from tallies, uh, and then systemic signs of unwell. So they might be febrile and just you know hypotensive, and it can occur as a consequence of a thing called toxic megacolon, Scott. But, uh, what's toxic megacolon? It's a,
1: it's a pretty cool name, mm. <laughs> but it's
0: a colon over six centimeters and it's due to fulminant colitis. Yeah, so you get this really edematous, uh, really you know, rigid colon which can rupture and then you get perforation. And-
1: Yeah, as we'll talk about, those conditions might need a bit of a chat with the surgeons. Yeah, pretty early on.
0: So a lot of those last things, you know, the crampy abdominal pain, the diarrhea, the fistula, the perianal disease, those are Crohn's related specifically, whereas the colitis and the, you know, potentially the perforation are related to ulcerative colitis and also Crohn's. So it can get a little confusing, but if you think about where the inflammation and where the disease is occurring in these, it makes a bit more sense. And there's a sort of one last thing that I think is worth mentioning is an entity called acute severe ulcerative colitis. So do you know what that is, Scott? Um, I think it's
1: uh acute version we've got a really high mortality yeah is that right? <laughs> it's acute severe version of it. um so <laughs> it has the a, words would suggest
0: 20 percent of first ulcerative colitis attacks are acute severe uc so they fall into this um, definition and it has a mortality rate of two percent which when you're dealing with sort of 19 20 year olds is pretty severe uh, it's defined by this very specific criteria true love and wits criteria i don't think you have to remember it just remember it's a severe presentation of uc so yeah, get more than six bloody stools per day plus those systemic symptoms so high temperatures, high heart rates, low hemoglobin because they're bleeding, or a really high ESR. And essentially, again, you have to involve the surgeon pretty early to avoid colectomy, which again, is super devastating for a young person. So Aggressive immunosuppression. Yeah, but we'll talk about that later, what you can use. So Scott, you mentioned some extra intestinal manifestations before. Um, can you run through what some of those are? So the things outside the gut that occur alongside IBD? Yeah,
1: so you can get oral ulcers. Which is in the gut, I guess. But, you know, yeah. yeah. Whole <laughs> <laughs> kind of in the gut. Yeah. The mouth so the gut. Mouth gut. Yeah. <laughs> the mouth hole. Um, <laughs> erythema nodosum, which are those um, kind of inflammation of the subcutaneous fat on your shins. Yeah,
0: red painful nodules on the skins.
1: Yeah. Large joint arthritis. Uh, you can get episcleritis. So that, that's kind of, you see a bit of erythema and it'll be kind of the sclera. In your eye, for anyone your who hasn't a lot of ophthalmology yet. Yeah. Yep. Um, primary sclerosing cholangitis you're at higher risk for that
0: it's probably worth mentioning that it's something that comes up a little bit it's um so it's when you get scarring of your bile ducts and that can ultimately lead to liver failure it's not not a small cause of you know transplant across um, australia so yeah it's, you know it's seen a lot in ulcerative colitis yeah i think it's a it's another
1: little mcq because i think a large proportion of primary sclerosing cholangitis are in patients who have you see, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no,
0: you don't really see it that often outside the disease. So, mm. uh,
1: what else, Scott? Ankylosing spondylitis, a bit you know, a linkage in with that HLA association we were talking about.
0: Yeah, so another autoimmune disease. It's an autoimmune disease that affects your back and your spine and causes uh, very painful bones. Uveitis, yep, again, inflammation of the uvea, which is in your eye. And then pyoderma gangrenosum, which is a pretty... I've seen a lot of cases of pyoderma gangrenosum for some reason. It's pretty horrible, isn't it? It's terrible, yeah. yeah. So you start to eat away, essentially, your subcutaneous tissues down to the muscle layer and all your fascia, um, just in an autoimmune process. And it's really hard to heal. It's horrible
1: ulcers, yeah. Yeah,
0: you try and do surgery on it and they get bigger and worse. It triggers more inflammation. Um, And then kidney and gallstones, which are related to sort of the nutritional aspects of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease so just to recap um let's talk about distinguishing ulcerative colitis and crohn's disease so i think that's really high yield stuff for medical school and even you know early exams in physician training and stuff so crohn's disease if i had to you know if you had to summarize that for me in terms of differentiating it from uc scott what would you say yes yeah, so it's hammer, hammering home
1: again so it spares the rectum and causes fistulizing disease um skip lesions and can also cause strictures and bowel obstruction beautiful
0: Yeah. uh okay so the case part three Being the astute young GP that you are, you recognise all the warning signs of potential IBD in this young, lovelorn student. You send off some basic bloods with an FBE, CRP and ESR. You also ask Mitch for a stool sample. You wonder about what you should do next, should any of your deepest fears be confirmed. You allay Mitch's fears that he simply hasn't taken enough protein powder and assure him that he was right to reject Gustavo's attempts to sell him some A-grade Brazilian anabolic steroids down at Doherty's gym. A-grade? He's only got the best Gustavo. You wonder whether Gustavo might have any product left for you, though. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Key question. Yeah. So diagnosis of IBD. Um, so you begin with a history and exam, but ultimately, you know, if you suspect the diagnosis, you're going to need an endoscopy and biopsy to rule it out. But let's start with some of the easier stuff. Um, lab tests. Scott, what sort of lab tests can you do?
1: So inflammatory markers. So you can look at the white cell count, the CRP, the ESR, and the platelets. And that's they're
0: particularly going to be changed if you're having an acute um episode mm-hmm. uh, you can check some of the malnutrition markers so iron vitamin d and b12 they're all sort of they can be decreased in people who have ibd because of the inflammation in the gut and tell me about this test called the fecal calprotectin scott
1: yeah so it's, uh, it's a reasonably new test and it's an inflammatory it tests the stool for inflammatory protein which is re- released by the gut so it means there's intestinal inflammation going on so it's not very specific for ibd but it's pretty sensitive so if you've got someone that you've got a low pretest test probability of IBD, it can be a useful tests to kind of avoid a scope and maybe someone with irritable bowel syndrome.
0: Totally, because there's a lot of, we'll talk about this later, there's a lot of overlap between irritable bowel syndrome and IBD. You know, young people come in with sort mm-hmm. of these specific bowel complaints, particularly if it's Crohn's disease. And if they, if they have no fecal calprotectin in their stool, they've got no inflammation in their gut. It's very unlikely to be um, IBD and you might be able to spare them a scope unless you have a high suspicion And then you can do a stool sample for infective causes i think sometimes we forget this but actually when someone presents with diarrhea probably the most obvious thing to do first is get a stool (laughs) sample and see what's in it um and then in terms of imaging there's a couple of imaging techniques uh ct ct enterocolysis which are specific imaging techniques to look at the bowel and then mr enterography which is a newer one they're not commonly used in first line because you ultimately need a colonoscopy usually but in Crohn disease where you get, you know, small bowel mainly affected and it's very hard to get there with the scope, um, it can actually show you a bit of inflammation in the small bowel and that can, might confirm a diagnosis. Um, and would you know when else it might be helpful to use uh, imaging, Scott?
1: Yeah, if you're looking for some of those secondary complications that we talked about, like, you know, infective complications like abscesses or obviously also, well, I mean, it should be a clinical fistula, diagnosis, yeah. but fistula or um,
0: um, perforation or yeah, all those kinds of things. that's right. So, and then we come to the Mac daddy, the endoscopy. So it really, you know, colonoscopy is probably, unless you suspect GI, you know, upper GI disease and Crohn's disease, but colonoscopy is going to be your first go-to. And you need to get into the, into, to the terminal ileum to look for Crohn's disease. Cause that's where in 80% of patients they are affected in the terminal ileum. Um, so can you give me, here we go. This is, this is great medical school stuff. So listen to this um, Crohn's disease. What does it look like macroscopically on, um, uh, on scope?
1: Yeah, so you get a polypoid mucosa, all these little bits sticking out, that results in a cobblestone appearance. Cobblestone, keyword. Keyword. Cobblestone. Cobblestone. You get skip lesions, so normal bits of mucosa in between the affected bits. You get often rectal sparing. You get these deep ulceration, and you can also see granulomas, but they're actually only seen in about thirty percent of patients.
0: That's right. And in terms of the histology, uh, it shows infiltrates of lymphocytes and macrophages. Those are the main cells you're seeing. Okay. In contrast, what are you seeing with ulcerative colitis, Scott? So, you're seeing this kind of diffuse,
1: more superficial disease. So, you're seeing erythema, congestion, loss of the normal vascular pattern. You can also see active bleeding. Yeah, and, and on histology. histology yeah, um, romantic. <laughs> oh, this is synchronized. <laughs> I need to pause the podcast. Yeah. For a minute, take a moment here. Um, so, you can see superficial disease on histology with crypt distortion and cryptitis. There's some keywords. Yeah, yeah. Crypt I, distortion. I
0: couldn't tell you what cryptitis looks like, but I know if I see it in a stem, that's your answer of colitis, that is. <laughs> so cryptitis, see, cobblestone, Crohn's. Mm. Um, so p- then there's pill cam. So that's good for looking at the small bowel. So if you suspect someone, you know, say Mitch, you might have small bowel disease, but you don't see anything in your initial colonoscopy, you can do this pill cam, which was invented in Israel. And you basically swallow a pill that has a camera on it and you leave it, you, go, you let it go through. You try to avoid doing it in someone who has intestinal strictures so someone with Crohn's disease who you know has a bowel stricture the pill cam can actually get stuck and there's one report case report of the pill cam being stuck for four and a half years i guess whoever was meant to collect it just <laughs> forgot that it was there and just <laughs> the patient wandered off but yeah and, and an interesting story on the pill cam so when they first invented you know they managed to get the prototype and they got one of the guys who invented it to swallow it and they, everyone was sitting around the tv watching it and it just sat in his stomach for the first three hours and so oh, we got to do something about this so they didn't give him anaesthetic, and they just put an endoscope down his throat and just pushed it through like a little <laughs> <laughs> video game until it went into his duodenum and then watched it go through. So oh, stuff that mm. like gastroenterologists get up to yeah, and I mean, they're so <laughs> pleasant. So in terms of your differential diagnoses of IBD, Scott, what are the? I mean, obviously you got particularly with Crohn's a pretty wide range of symptoms. But what uh, what are some of the differentials you'd be looking for?
1: Yeah, so the really key ones would be um, irritable bowel syndrome. So remember that's that kind of variable syndrome of people having all these unusual kind of diarrhea or constipation and intermittent distressing symptoms, but without a lot of um, kind of, Heavy under underlying physical pathology yeah. is that like a good way to that, word it? That's <laughs> a good way. To say it. What he's trying to say is there's a big connection between sort there's of. There's a big cycle. Psych- there's a psychological, psychological element problem. as yeah. well, and there's yeah. a, I think there's a lot of feedback between the symptoms that they're experiencing yeah. and um and yeah. other factors. The gut brain relationship. Not to um, not to say that they can just wake up one day and decide not to have these symptoms because they are real
0: symptoms. Yeah. But uh, and then there's lactose intolerance or other dietary intolerances, particularly in young people, that start to come out around that age. Uh, and then infectious colitis is the obvious one, as we said before, so someone might just have gastroenteritis, and so hence the stool sample, and if mm. you're doing an endoscopy, you can take biopsies and have a look at some stranger things like cytomegalovirus. Mm. Um, and then consider mm. recent antibiotics, so obviously Clostridium difficile, which is you know related difficile. to you know, <laughs> is related to uh, recent antibiotics. So just take a good history from that point of view. So recapping the diagnosis, how do you go about, what's your plan for making a diagnosis, Scott? So you should take a history
1: exam and check some inflammatory markers and stool samples, but really you need an endoscopy
0: to confirm the diagnosis. That's right. And the macroscopic and microscopic appearances on endoscopy will determine, you know, whether you're going down the UC, ulcerative colitis pathway, or whether you're going down the CD, Crohn disease pathway. Um, UC has shallow ulcerative inflammation, where it occurs in a continuous fashion working its way up the colon. Whereas Crohn's disease is deep transmural inflammation that just punches out intermittently along the gut, can affect anywhere, and has a polypy appearance potentially with granulomas.
1: So what's happening with Mitch? How's let's it get, going? Let's get back to the Getting main huge.
0: man. Uh, so Mitch's back. blood's come back to it, demonstrating a CRP of 20, an ES- ESR of 25, a microcytic anemia, and a low vitamin D. He unfortunately hasn't managed to get any bigger since you saw him last. You, however, have <laughs> developed a nice swell due to Gustavo's premium juice. <laughs> You remind yourself to swing by the gym after work today to pick up a new batch. In the meantime, a gastroenterologist has seen and scoped Mitch. He had skip lesions in his colon with deep transmural fissures. Luckily, there were no fistulae or strictures yet. So the gastroenterologist tells you that Mitch has active Crohn's disease and start to advise you to start him on a small dose of steroids temporarily while the azathioprine that he started on him takes effect. So now we're going to move into management of IBD, which can be an immensely complicated topic. But we're going to go over some of the goals of therapy and just quickly touch on, on the drugs involved in treating IBD. So in the short term, when someone like this presents, Scott, with you know, acute symptoms, what's your goal?
1: So if they're having an acute flare, your first goal is to induce remission. Step and one. And
0: relieve their acute yeah. symptoms. Step one, get rid of you know the current symptoms, current inflammation. And then you think about your long-term plan, just a little bit more complicated. What are the goals that you should be thinking about there, Scott?
1: Yeah, so you want to then maintain that remission, stop them having more acute flares. And you also want to try and minimize steroid use because steroids are kind of like the shotgun of immunosuppression. Yeah. And as kind of common and benign sounding as they are, they actually cause a lot more side effects than a lot of the other things that only affect particular parts of the immune system.
0: That's right, yeah. Yeah. And then you want to prevent more flares of the disease. So every time you have a flare, particularly of Crohn's, puts you at risk of developing those things that you can't fix, like strictures and, you know, risking a bowel obstruction. You want to prevent the complications of, of your medication and your treatment, and you want to maintain some quality of life in these young people, which is important when you start to think about surgery and when you refer. Because, I mean, you, you can easily treat ulcerative colitis in everyone. You just cut out the colon. But, you know, <laughs> it's not a great quality of life Um so the main drugs we use are 5-amino So those are all your salazine drugs, old salazine, sulfur sulfasalazine, steroids, thiopurines, methotrexate, cyclosporine, and the biologic agents, which are there are a number of drugs in there. Now we're going to touch on all of those specifically. So in terms of steroids, Scott, you spoke a little bit about them before, but tell me some more.
1: Yeah, so these are still really the mainstay of treatment for acute flares of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and they're really good for getting a quick short-term response but they're not as effective for maintaining long-term remission
0: yeah so it's interesting on that point it's not only that like you know they have the side effects uh, you know all the toxicity of steroids which obviously they do but even if, if you keep someone on steroids forever, there was a study that looked at this, they actually don't maintain remission on steroids. Somehow the disease breaks through. So it's, they're not a good option for long-term control from either toxic point of view or effectiveness point of view. Um, there are some new steroids that have come out. Have you heard about any of these, Scott? Oh, uh, nah. okay. no. Okay, let me tell you about it. Then. <laughs> um, so traditionally you had prednisolone, methylprednisolone, hydrocortisone, but budesonide is a new one that's sort of being used a lot in America. It's more expensive and it's hard to get on the PBS, but it has less side effects because of high first pass metabolism, which means that it gets absorbed in the gut, goes to the liver and the liver breaks it down. So the rest of the body doesn't really ever see it, just stays in the gut. Um, it comes with multiple formulations um, and some of them are actually you know designed such that they Only start to work when they hit the terminal ileum and proximal colon, so you get a very specific effect, and they're, they're really great. Um, but again, difficult to get on PBS and very expensive. Yeah. I don't
1: know if you can just use like the spray that COPD people use and then yeah, just, just kind of put it in it's... your anus or yeah, something. Yeah, well, sure. that, yeah, maybe uh, experimentally. Look if, you're, <laughs> yeah, if you're looking to get a cheap butesonite, <laughs> that might be your way to
0: go. Cheap hit. Um, so that's steroids. Let's talk about five aminosalicylates. So these ones pretty much only used in ulcerative colitis. There are some exceptions to that. Some gastroenterologists will using Crohn's disease. But I think, from our point of view, just think about them as ulcerative colitis-only drugs. Um, and tell me a bit more about them, Scott.
1: So just remember, these are all the salazines. So the mm-hmm. sulfasalazine, the salazine. Old salazine. Old salazine. Old salazine. <laughs> <laughs> old salazine. Old gold. <laughs> um, and they're um, available in multiple forms. So you can have tablets and you can also have topical foams or suppositories, which are obviously going to be more directed into that real kind of rectal and colonic disease and they can be used both for induction and maintenance.
0: Yeah, and typically used for less severe disease. I mean, I think what generally happens what I've seen is someone will present as long as it's not acute severe ulcerative colitis, so I present, you try and start them on a little bit of this and just see if you can get away with, you know, mesalazine because it's really low toxicity, well tolerated, just mainly diarrhea, headaches, nausea, rash, even then they're all pretty rare. The only problem with these, and I've seen this before actually in the hospitals, you know, you start a young person with ulcer colitis on a salazine and they get better and they just stop it. Cause they're like, well, I don't need this anymore. Uh, and then they come back. We actually had one who came back with acute severe colitis and was like very close oh, to getting wow. yeah, a colectomy. So yeah. Um, that's the salazines so or the five amino salicylates. Then there's the thiopurines. So examples are azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine. So, so thiopurines—they so end with a purine. Purine, yeah. That's nice. what I remember. Or a purine, urine. Yeah. yeah.
1: Purine. And how do they work, Scott? So they inhibit purine synthesis. Nice. In Still lymphocytes. Coming together. Yeah.
0: So they affect your T and B lymphocytes. Yeah, that's right. And they act as a—you know—as in Mitch, they act as a steroid-sparing drug for maintaining remission. So they're not so good for the acute. Um, you know suppressing the acute flare because they act very slowly but they maintain remission Um, they have a very complex metabolism a lot of complex pharmacokinetics and so there's a lot of genetic variation in this enzyme called tpmt just remember that Uh, and so you actually need to check tpmt in people before they get it because some people uh, a very small amount of people have severe deficiencies in tpmt and they're at super high risk for um, very toxic side effects mainly myelosuppression so they go lose all their blood toxicity as well yeah yeah. So in terms of side effects, yeah, myelosuppression, hepatotoxicity, um, nausea, pancreatitis, and as with you know all immunosuppressants, an increased risk of infection. It's interesting. One of the other things I think to drill in, you know, with immunosuppressants is you generally have an increased risk of cancers as well because you lose the normal immune surveillance of cancerous cells that you get in your body. So those are the thi- thiopurines: azathioprine, 6 mecaptopurine and then there's methotrexate. Good old methotrexate. Good old
1: methotrexate.
0: Talk to us about that. So Scott. it's a
1: folic acid analog, and it's used widely for immunosuppression. And it's not that clear how it works in IBD. And it's often a second-line agent, um, mainly in Crohn's disease. And it's used for induction and for maintenance.
0: Yeah. It's probably getting less popular these days, given it has long-term side effects. And these young people are going to be on them for a while. And we've got all these new drugs. But uh, in terms of some of the side effects, you get, you know, methotrexate, lung toxicity, so it can actually cause a interstitial lung disease, ILD. It's obviously teratogenic, so if you've got young women, it's not ideal. Um, Hepatotoxic, it's myelotoxic, and then on the more common but less severe side effect, they get nausea and headaches. So cyclosporine, let's not talk about this too much, but it's essentially a calcineurin antagonist that inhibits cell-mediated immunity, so T-cells, T-lymphocytes. And it used to be used as a rescue therapy in severe steroid refractory ulcerative colitis. But what's the problem with it, Scott? Well, it's got
1: a lot of toxicity. Yeah. Um, you can get neurologic toxicity, hypertension, nephrotoxicity, increased yeah. infections, and also a lot of interactions with different drugs as yeah. well. Yeah,
0: so it's just not effective or safe in young people for long-term use, you know. So not a, not nice drugs. So that brings us on to the Mac Daddies. They're making mm. a lot of money out of this, a big mm. area of research. Uh, biological agents. So how do you use them, Scott? And what are they used for?
1: So they're mainly used for well, most stuff, really. So inducing yeah. and maintaining remission, really. In both diseases, ulcerative colitis and yeah. Crohn disease. Yeah. Um, and so the, big, the first category around were the TNF inhibitors. Um, and they're infliximab and adalimumab are some of the commonly used ones in um, IBD. And the main side effects is all these things are, you know,
0: immunosuppression side effects and so infective complications. Mm. And also immune reactions when you're getting the drug. They can trigger off, you know, some problems there. But mm. they're super effective, you know, and they're really great in combination with the thiopurine. So azathioprine and 6-mecaptopurine. So typically used when, you know, you're not getting control of the disease on some of the easier stuff and you've got to jack it up a little bit. Um,
1: yeah, You're <laughs> like you're a farmer. <laughs> just got you know, some of the easier yeah, stuff. You, just gotta jack it up the, a little some bit. Some of the C stuff, you know. <laughs> you know, you, you've tried the basics. Yeah, you right. know. I tried the, the, the Rolls, Rolls Royce. Royce. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, and then, so that was TNF inhibitors. They were the first on the market, still the most commonly used by far. But nowadays, for some people who had problems with those, you can mm. move on to the alpha-4B7. Yeah, back onto
1: a sexy patient. Yeah. makes yeah. some moolah. Yeah, if you really want hey, you've tried <laughs> the small boys in the <laughs> biological world, but if
0: you really want quality for your patients, yeah. try an alpha-4B7 integrin inhibitor. <laughs> so that's Um Natalizumab is another one that's used in multiple sclerosis, but it's not used in... Um, ulcerative colitis and, uh, and Crohn's disease. And they're really interesting how these alpha-4B7 integral inhibitors work. Do you know how they work, Scott? I think it's something to do with white cell migration and adhesion. That's right. So you give it to them and it blocks the cell adhesion molecules in the intestinal endothelium. So all these white cells that are bearing around your body, they get to the intestine where they normally manage to adhere to the endothelium and then get you out there and start an immune response. It blocks that adherence, and so they just can't get into that area. So it's quite specifically acting on the intestine, which is the more specific you can be with these things, the less other side effects you get. So that's that's great. Chemotaxis, yeah. 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 And then you've got a new one, really new one, ustakinumab, which is an anti-IL-12, IL-23. So those are cytokines. And that's even more specific, so less side effects. But you know, it's, um, it's sort of newer, more expensive, a bit more difficult to get. Lastly, I think there's one domain of drugs that we can talk about, and that's antibiotics. Um, so you don't use them for just a standard flare of IBD, unless you suspect some complications. And what sort of complications might they be, Scott?
1: Yeah, so um, obviously any kind of infective complications. So if they've got a really severe colitis, and you're worried about infection with features like fever and things as well, um, if you've got an intra, if you suspect an intra abdominal abscess, if they've got perianal abscesses or fistula. Or if you've got pouchitis, is a really important one.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that. But pouchitis is a pretty specific thing. Um, so, and, you know, coming to that, is surgery is sort of your last ditch effort in inflammatory bowel disease. So, ultimately, you know, like I said, the ultimate treatment for ulcerative colitis is just to remove the colitis part, the colon. Um, so, you get the colorectal surgeon involved, and you also use them um, for fistulae in Crohn's disease. So. Obviously, that's going to require some sort of operative management if you've got a fistula between the bowel or a fistula between the bowel and the skin. So in terms of that pouch that we were just talking about, what is that?
1: So it's when they remove the colon and then they attach the ileum to the anus to try and keep the patient being fecally continent.
0: That's right, yeah. But as a, compl- uh, as a complication, that, that pouch that they create can get infected, and that needs to be treated with antibiotics. And they also get pretty severe uh, regular bowel action, so six to eight times a day, which in a young person is pretty tricky. <laughs> <laughs> it's Maybe. a lot of breaks from class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So back to the case. Let's see what's going on with Mitch. Uh, you see him a year down the track. His oral ulcers have healed. But you can still smell the cool, refreshing blast of menthol sweet on his breath. Just nothing. Nothing's nothing, the same. Nothing either. better. It's just classic. Yeah. Mm, classic menthol. <laughs> it's taste. really irreplaceable. Um, so pleasingly, his hand is free of the usual red lipstick marks that you see. I don't know why he was wearing lipstick while he was practicing kissing, but anyway. Um, and he's put on some muscle mass, not nearly as much as you though. With each bicep now measuring twenty-seven centimeters, <laughs> owing to your friendly relationship with Gustavo. Mitch is being maintained on azathioprine and has weaned off the steroids. He's avoided the need for any surgery thus far. So you ask if he's managed to land Sharon yet, and he tells you he has, but he hasn't told her about his Crohn's disease. Landed Shazza. He's landed Shazza. The eagle has landed. Um, so he's ashamed of his disease, and he asks if you could break it to her. So I think this brings us to some other issues to consider in IBD. So what's, what are some other, so if you really want to get seven out of seven on your physician's clinical exam, what's some other things you might talk about?
1: Yeah. So as we're talking about, you know, in this, his complex relationship with Sharon, psychological wellbeing is really important because it's a stigmatized disease. No one wants a problem with their Colon. No, it's it's not cool. It's not a nice, cool
0: place to have a disease. It's not like a, like a fracture, like really manly. Yeah. Like fracturing your nose while you rode your motorbike. That's, that would get Sharon going.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So also smoking status. As we talked about before, Um, nutrition maintenance is really important, particularly with the chronic symptoms of, you know, diarrhea and um, malnutrition, Um, managing pregnancy and kind of consideration of different forms of immunosuppression and or if someone has a colectomy and um, has, you know, uh, stoma that can
0: also be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, if they're having flares during pregnancy, it's really hard to manage that as well. And a lot of these drugs interact with pregnancy, as we said. Mm. Then there's a uh, psychological well-being, which we touched on before. But just recognising that most of your patients are pretty young, and you know they've still got maybe still forming their personality and their self-esteem, and this can take a hit. Uh, there's a risk of cancer because people with inflammatory bowel disease have an increased risk of bowel cancer, and so that you need to think about surveillance. But also some of those drugs we talked about can increase your risk of other non-bowel cancers. So something to keep in mind. Vaccination. Immunosuppressed people need to be vaccinated, need to be protected from infection. And lastly, osteoporosis. With malnutrition and chronic inflammation, you're at a much higher risk. And again, over long periods of time of all these drugs, steroids, not getting um, malnourished, uh, being malnourished, you know, by the time they're, they're sitting ducks for having osteoporosis, by the time they're 50 or 40. So, mm. Yeah, because
1: yeah, it's a disease which people will have for so long, isn't mm-hmm. it? So, I think the takeaway points there were everyone should smoke Winfield cigarettes. That's really which what are I our key from sponsor that. here. Yeah. And um, we should all apparently just meet someone at the gym named Gustavo yeah. and um, yeah. see what he can source for us.
0: If you want 27 centimeter biceps, which I presume everyone <laughs> does, then yeah, Gustavo Gustavo's your man. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, cool. Well, look, uh, that was the long demanded. I think there have been a few people getting at us about an inflammatory bowel disease podcast, and I apologize. We kind of were like, "Oh, it's coming out next week." That was like <laughs> four months ago, but yep. here it is. Uh, here it is.
1: Christmas morning. Yeah, this, this is how problem. much we love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, Poor orphans. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.